Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation. What we'll see will defy explanation. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the great Gene Wilder sing Pure Imagination from the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And for the next hour, we're going to celebrate the life of this great actor who starred in so many of our favorite movies over the past 50 years, from the producers to Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, and so many others. Gene Wilder, stage actor, screen comic actor, and by the way, nobody did comedy better, and it's the hardest, hardest aspect of acting. Any actor will tell you this. Getting people to laugh is no duck walk. He was a screenwriter, a film director, and my goodness, he could interpret a song too. You just heard it. And an author as well. He was born Jerome Silberman on June 11, 1933 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the son of Jan and William Silberman, a manufacturer and salesman of novelty items. His father was a Russian Jewish immigrant, as were his maternal grandparents. Wilder first became interested in acting at age eight when his mother was diagnosed with rheumatic fever and the doctors told him to try and make her laugh. Here, Gene talks about that time in his life. When I was a, a little boy, I mean seven or eight, my mother had a heart attack and the doctor said, don't ever get angry with your mom because you could kill her. Make her laugh. And that was the first time I remember consciously trying to make someone laugh. And I did. I made her laugh, and my criterion was if I could make her pee in her pants, then I knew I had done something funny. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, I, I don't, I'm not saying it for a joke. It's very true, I, because she'd say, now look what you've made me do. But, uh, but little boys and, and grown men are confident of what they do in life because of, of what their mothers told them that they were good at. And when I knew I could make my mother laugh, I felt I could make someone else laugh. And that's all I'm doing now, is carrying on the tradition. Indeed. At the age of 11, he saw his sister, who was studying acting, performing on stage, and he was enthralled by the experience. He asked her teacher if he could become his student, and the teacher said that if he was still interested at age 13, he would take Wilder on as a student. The day after Wilder turned 13, he called that teacher, who accepted him. Wilder studied with him for two years. Here... Wilder talks about his earliest influences as an actor and how he discovered his approach to being a comedic actor. When I was growing up, um, I heard Danny Kaye on a record before I ever saw him, before Up in Arms, and I thought that's what I'd like to do. Then I saw Up in Arms. But then when I was in junior high school, I started to, uh, my idol then was Sid Caesar. Unbeknownst, well, I didn't realize that Mel Brooks was writing most of the material, so I got to know Mel before I even knew him. But uh, then I saw 
Lee J. Cobb in Death of a Salesman on Broadway. And I realized that he was doing something different from what I had thought I wanted to do. It didn't mean that I didn't want to yeah. be in comedy, but I wanted to approach it in a different way, through character, instead of just stepping on banana peels and mm. making funnies. Indeed, and that's when the best comedic acting occurs. When his mother felt that Gene's potential was not being fully realized in Wisconsin, she sent him to Black Fox, a military institute in Hollywood, where he was bullied primarily because he was the only Jewish boy in the school, according to his own account. After an unsuccessful short stay at Black Fox, Wilder returned home and became increasingly involved with the local theater community. At age 15, he performed for the first time in front of a paying audience in a production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Gene Wilder graduated from the Washington High School in Milwaukee in 1951. Here, Gene talks about how he went from the name Jerome Silberman to Gene Wilder. I had just gotten into the actor's studio, which was a, a big thrill for me. And I didn't want to be introduced as Jerry Silberman. I couldn't picture Jerry Silberman in Hamlet or Macbeth or something like that. And I had to think of a name overnight. And um, my sister and brother-in-law had a friend who's the fastest talker I've ever met. And he started with A and worked his way up through the alphabet. When he got to W, he said, Wilder. And I said, that's the one I want. And then for the first name, it was because of uh, Thomas Wolfe's books, uh, the Look Homeward Angel. And the hero's name was Eugene, but everyone called him Gene, who loved him. And the web and the rock, and you can't go home again. It was always Gene. So I put the two together, and then I was introduced by Lee Strasberg as Gene Wilder. Because there, Ely Kazan and Shelley Winters and Rod Steiger and Paul Newman, and uh, I didn't want them to say, Jerry, what's your name, Jerry or Gene or what? So that's how it started. And we're going to hear more about this great life story, but what good luck on his part to land in New York at the actor's studio at that time. Lee Strasberg, who, if you remember, plays a remarkable part in The Godfather and is one of the great acting coaches in American history, teaching some of the great actors today that we all love and teaching them a certain methodology of acting called The Method. Some loved it, some didn't. But my goodness, the ones who lived by it gave us some of the finest craft ever. And in the end, it's what made Wilder so good. He, he decided to become the characters. And then we laughed, but he wasn't. And this, you see, even in Seinfeld, to this day, that style, which is the, they're not slipping on banana peels. They're in character. George is in character. We just find that character hilarious. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You're going to hear about Gene Wilder's life in his own words, a remarkable American life which we celebrate here on Our American Stories. Jerome Silberman becomes Gene Wilder, and we'll pick it up right there after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. Following his 1955 graduation from Iowa, he was accepted at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School in Bristol, England. After six months of studying fencing, Wilder became the first freshman to win the all-school fencing championship. No small feat. He was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1956, and at the end of recruit training, he was assigned to the Medical Corps and sent to Fort Sam Houston for training. In November of 57, his mother died from ovarian cancer. He was discharged from the Army a year later and returned to New York. A scholarship to the HB studio allowed him to become a full-time student. At first, living on unemployment insurance and some savings, he later supported himself with odd jobs such as a limo driver and fencing instructor. Wilder began his career on stage and made his screen debut in the TV series Armstrong Circle Theater in 1962. Although his first film role was portraying a hostage in the 1967 motion picture Bonnie and Clyde, Wilde's first major role was as Leopold Bloom in the 1968 masterpiece The Producers, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. This was the first in a series of collaborations with writer-director Mel Brooks, including 1974's Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which Wilder co-wrote garnering the pair an Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Here's Gene Wilder talking with Larry King about the moment he met Mel Brooks and how Mel, Mel introduced him to a screenplay called Springtime for Hitler. I was in a play called Mother Courage by Bertolt Brecht, starring Anne Bancroft, whose boyfriend was Mel Brooks, and Mel came by to pick her up each evening after the show. And I was having trouble with one little section in the play. And he said, he gave me tips on how to act Brecht. He said, that's a song and a dance. He's proselytizing about communism. Just skip over this. Sing and dance right over it and get on to the good stuff. And he was right. That's the irony. And I did. Then he said, would you like to come to Fire Island with Annie and me? Uh, I'll read you the first 30 pages of a movie I'm writing. And I went to Fire Island. We went fishing on the surf, came back, had dinner, and then Annie and I sat down and he read 30 pages of Springtime for Hitler. That's what it was called then. And then he said, would you like to play that part of Leo Bloom? I said, absolutely. He said, all right, all right. So don't take anything in the fall without checking with me. September came and I was offered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Not the movie, the play with Kirk Douglas. So I called Mel and said, I feel a little silly, but you said, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you get a four-week out in your contract? I said, no one knows me. I can't. No, they said, can you get a two-week out? He said. I said, maybe a four-week, because I'm not a star. All right, we'll have to live with it, he said. Three years went by. I never heard from him. I didn't get a telegram. I didn't get a telephone call. And I'm doing Murray Shiskal's play called Love on Broadway, matinee, taking off my makeup, Knock, knock on the door. I open the door. There's Mel with a tall stranger. I said, Mel. <laughs> he said, you don't think I forgot, do you? <laughs> Classic. Wilder goes on to describe how Mel Brooks introduced him to Sidney Glazier and Zero Mostel. He said, this is Sidney Glazier, our producer. We're going to do Springtime for Hitler now. Said, but I can't just cast you. You've got to meet Zero first. Tomorrow, 10 o'clock, my heart was pounding. I got to the 
office door of Sidney Glazier's office. The door opens, there's Mel. He says, come on in. Z, he called zero Z. This is Gene. Gene, this is Z. And I put out my hand tentatively. And Zero grabbed my hand, pulled me to him, and kissed me on the lips. <laughs> and all my nervousness went away. And then we did the reading, and I got the part, and everything was fine. Yeah, try that sometime, folks. Here's Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel from an early scene in The Producers, where Leo Bloom, the accountant played by Wilder, throws an absolute fit when Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, the producer, takes away his little blue blanket. May I speak to you for a minute? Go. You have 58 seconds. Well, in glancing at your books, I noticed that in the columns... Mark you have 48 the... seconds left. Hurry, hurry. Oh, uh, I glanced at your books, I noticed in the... 28 seconds. Running out of time. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You're making me extremely nervous. What is that, a handkerchief? Nothing, that's nothing. If it's nothing, know. why can't I see? Oh, my, my blanket, my blue blanket, give me my blue blanket. Oh, no, 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 it's not important. It's a minor compulsion. I can deal with it if I want to. It's just that I've had it ever since I was a baby, and I find it very comforting. <laughs> oh, the physical performance by Gene Wilder is as good as the verbal, and Buster Keaton would be, well, looking down from heaven and just thinking, wow. In 1971, Wilder auditioned to play Willy Wonka on Mel Stewart's film adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wilder was initially hesitant when he learned about the role, but finally accepted it under one condition. Here's Gene Wilder with that story. I'd read, read the book, and Mel Stewart, the director, came to my home in New York. And he said, you want to do it? I said, well, I'll tell you, I'd like to do it if I can come out and all the crowd quiets down, and I'm, I'm using a cane. Oh, my God, Willy Wonka is crippled. And I walk slowly, and you can hear a pin drop, and my cane gets stuck in a brick. And I do, I fall over on my face and do a forward somersault and jump up, and they all start to applaud. He said, what do you, Mel Stewart said, what do you want to do that for? I said, because no one will know from that point on whether I'm lying or telling the truth. He said, are you saying you won't do the film if, we, if you can't do that? I said, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Do it. And I meant it. He did mean it. And that's why Gene Wilder is Gene Wilder. Yeah, because that's not in the book. It is not in the book. When Woody Allen offered him a role in one segment of everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, Gene Wilder accepted. Everything, the movie, was a hit. It grossed $18 million in the United States against a $2 million budget. Here is the scene from that film where Wilder plays a doctor whose patient informs him about his love for a particular barnyard animal. Come in, Mr. Milos. Come in. Sit down right over here. I just want to get some history on you first. So, your name is... Stavros Milos. And your address? Armenia. Armenia. I am from Armenia. I am visiting my brother. 
Um, occupation. Shepherd. A shepherd? My whole family. Except for my brother over here, who is a rug salesman. Mm -hmm. Have you had any major illnesses? No. None. Good. So. Now, what seems to be the trouble? I'm in love with the sheep. I beg your pardon? <laughs> I am in love with the sheep. <laughs> oh, I see. See, doctor, up there in the mountains where I tend my flocks, it's so beautiful under the starry skies. And I am alone. And sometimes it gets so lonely. And the hours pass. And soon I desire a woman. But, doctor, there are no women. I'm not married and... Well, one night last summer, I saw her. Her? Daisy. Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and how Gene Wilder plays this, how straight he plays it, is just one of the hardest things to do in comedy. And it's what made it so good. He just played the part. And, you know, sitting in front of me is a, a book called True and False by David Mamet, the great playwright and acting coach. And he continually says again and again, just do the words. Just let the words do the work. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. Let the words do the work. And let the character be revealed through the words. Actually, it sounds real simple. But you heard Gene Wilder in that conversation about a prior movie and his artistic decision. And you're hearing it again and again in each of these clips. You know, he plays the accountant and the producers, and he just plays it straight. And that's why he's so damn good. When we come back, young Frankenstein and beyond. This young actor becomes a mature and seasoned actor, and pretty soon an internationally famous one. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story celebrating the life of Gene Wilder. And you're listening to some of the theme music from Young Frankenstein. We're talking about Gene Wilder, his life. We're celebrating it here on Our American Stories. And after everything you always wanted to know about sex, Woody Allen's movie, Wilder began working on a script he called Young Frankenstein. Here, Wilder talks about the creation of that script, the casting of the film, and trying to get Mel Brooks on board on the project. I went back east, and it was... Uh... March or April, and I had a little place in West Hampton Beach, Long Island. And after lunch, I took a, a yellow legal pad and a blue felt pen, and I wrote Young Frankenstein on top. And then for two, two pages, I thought, what could happen to me if I suddenly found out I was 
and heir to Beaufort von Frankenstein's whole estate in Transylvania. And I finished the two pages. I called Mel. I told him, well, he says, cute. It's cute. That's all he said. And then later on that summer, Mike Medavoy, who was my agent at the time, you got anything for you and Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman? I said, well, what made you think of that company? He said, because I now handle you and Peter <laughs> and Marty. I said, well, with a wonderful artistic basis. Uh, as it happens, I think I do. Send it to me. I said, no, give me another day or two. And I wrote two more pages. The Transylvania Station, almost verbatim, the way it is. And it put an ending on it. Track 29. Yes, yes. And uh, Mike Medavoy called me and said, I think I can sell this. What do you think about Mel directing? I said, yeah, I'd love it, but you're whistling Dixie because he won't direct something he didn't conceive of. Now, you have to remember that Mel spent two years on the producers and made $25,000 a year. He spent the next two years on the 12 chairs, $25,000 a year. Neither one made a penny. Joe Levine made money, but yeah. Mel didn't. They were offering him 250000 or 25000 or whatever to direct this. And he said yes. He called me. He said, what are you getting me into? I said, nothing you don't want to get into. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Next day, they said, we signed Mel. Having just seen Marty Feldman, and by the way, that's the actor who played Igor, on television, Wilder was inspired to write a scene that takes place at Transylvania Station where Igor and Frederick meet for the first time. The scene was included in the film almost verbatim. Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Froderick? No, Frederick. Well, why isn't it Froderick Frankenstein? It isn't. It's Frederick Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? Of course. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. I, uh, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I could help you with that hump. What hump? <laughs> what hump? Young Frankenstein was a huge success, with Wilder and Brooks receiving Best Adapted Screenplay nominations at the 1975 Oscars, losing to Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo for their adapt adaptation of The Godfather Part Two. Shortly after Young Frankenstein, Wilder and Brooks set out on another film called Blazing Saddles. Here, Gene talks about how he was nearly cast for another role. I wanted to uh, play the Waco kid, the part that I did play. And Mel said, no, 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 I want you're too young. I want an over-the-hill alcoholic. I got Dan Daly who's going to play it. He wanted me to play Harvey Corman's part. I said, I'm all wrong for this. And um, six weeks went by. Dan Daly begged off because he had just finished some directing something. So they got Gig Young. Gig Young got into the costume, makeup, on the way to the jail cell, and foam started coming out of his mouth. He was on the wagon suddenly and withdrawing. And Mel thought he was acting, you know, some method acting. He said, good, keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, and then he passed out. 
And Mel said, it's a sign from God. <laughs> he called me from the, the phone on stage. He said, can you come tomorrow? I said, I'm supposed to go to London to do uh, The Little Prince with Stanley Donnan directing. Beg off. The next day I was on a plane, and the next day I was hanging upside down in the jail cell. And here's Gene Wilder introducing himself as the Waco Kid from this scene in Blazing Saddles. I don't know if you ever heard of me before, but I used to be called the Waco Kid. I was just walking down the street, and I heard a voice behind me say, Reach for it, mister. And I spun around, and there I was, face to face, with a six-year-old kid. Well, I just threw my guns down and walked away. Little bastard shot me in the ass. <laughs> so I limped to the nearest saloon, crawled inside a whiskey bottle, and I've been there ever since. In 1975, Wilder's agent sent him a script for a film called Super Chief. Wilder accepted, but told the film's producers that he thought the only person who could keep the film from being offensive was Richard Pryor. Pryor accepted the role in the film, which had been renamed Silver Streak, the first film to team Wilder and Pryor. They became Hollywood's most successful interracial movie comedy duo. Here, Wilder talks about that chemistry he had with Pryor, and how they always found it easy to improvise with each other. I hope this comes out right, but it's a little bit like sex. You know, when you, <laughs> when you meet someone and the chemistry is there, you don't know why, you don't know how, but it's there. I met him the night before we did our first scene. We hugged, we did the first scene, and he said something and I said something, and it wasn't in the script after the camera started rolling. And it went very well. And I, he said, did you know you were going to say that? I said, no. Did you know you were going to say that? He said, no. I never improvised in a film before. In, in classes I did, but not in a film. But with him, I always improvised. Because if you don't, you're not going to be anywhere. Not with Richard. In 1980, Wilder teamed up again with Richard Pryor in Stir Crazy, directed by Sidney Poitier. Pryor was struggling with a severe cocaine addiction at the time, and filming became difficult. But once the film premiered, it became an international success. Here's Gene Wilder talking about his approach to acting, the choices he makes, and his thoughts on show business. I studied for altogether maybe 18 years. I got accepted into the actor's studio. I would approach doing Leo Bloom in The Producers in the same way as I would do Death of a Salesman. But the choices would be different. I would make comic choices. But the acting process, create a human being who's real, not only to the audience, but real to me. And so I, I think if you want to say the, uh, you're a method comic actor, yes, without getting into what method is, but uh, a Stanislavski comic actor, yes, because I'm trying to do it the same way I would. I don't, I don't mean this to sound... Uh, I don't want it to come out funny, but I don't like show business. I love acting in films. I love it. I like the show, but I don't like the business. 
And when I go to a restaurant and they're talking 3.6, 9.8, and how many, what the budget, and, the, and everyone is a, a writer or a director or an actor or a producer, and it, it just makes me nervous. And that's Gene Wilder talking about his craft and the business. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the quintessential American story of Gene Wilder. More after these messages. You're blue and you don't know where to go to. Why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up. This is our American stories. And was there anything Gene Wilder couldn't do? We learned that he worked for and with Sidney Poitier, and they became fast friends, working together on a script called Traces, which became 1982's Hanky Panky, the film where Wilder met comedian Gilda Radner. And that was in August of 1981. It would change his life. When filming ended, Wilder found himself missing Radner, so he called her. The relationship grew, and the couple married in September of 1984 in the south of France. Anyone who knows the story of Gene Wilder knows about the deep connection he had with Gilda, whose life was tragically cut short by ovarian cancer, that same cancer that took Gene's mother. Here together, Gene and Gilda talk about their relationship shortly before her passing. To me, it's irresistible. A funny man is irresistible more than any looks, more than any... She was always a sucker for a big laugh. A sucker for a laugh. I'm the best audience. She's my teacher because she tells the truth more than I do. When I am faced with a really tough one where I, I get hurt, I withdraw into what Gilda calls a dot. Dot man. And she <laughs> will lambast me until I have the courage to get angry with her, respect her enough to get angry with her and let her have it, not in order to punish her, but to say what's truly on my heart, what hurt my feelings, because if you harbor it, it comes out in another way. But if you say it at the time, it's gone. Five minutes later, it's gone. Maybe the next day. <laughs> or possibly in three years. But it does go yeah. away. Twelve years ago, it wouldn't have worked. At this minute, right here, now specifically, yeah, we're happy. Um, yeah, we're happy. Yeah. Here, Gene Wilder talks about keeping romance alive in a relationship that's been going on for a few years. I feel very strongly from my own experience and from what I've seen in the world that when it hits that way, that classic way that we hear about, it's not sex that men are looking for. When they have a good woman, children, it's adventure. They want a reaffirmation that they're a man. So they, they think that they'll find it by conquests. And if, if husbands and wives or, or people who are living together can keep alive the romance in their relationship so that when the egg is running down the corner of your mouth in the morning and the breath isn't quite so good or there's a little toothpaste on the side of the whatever you know after two three four years of that you start to think of well 
Where's the romance in my life? The couples can keep romance in their lives. Wilder explains how Gilda kept him grounded and got his attention, ultimately changing his life. Gilda was different in this respect. She said, uh, I'm here for a purpose, and that's to get you to wake up and smell the coffee, not be off in the clouds someplace, listening to Mozart or Jacques Brel, but to be here with me. And when you feel anger or you feel something on your mind, you say so right now, here and now. I'm not a perfect woman that you've been searching for all your life. I'm just little imperfect Gilda. And if that's what you want, a real love, I'm your best bet. And that changed my life. Wow. Here Wilder talks about Gilda's untimely passing and the misdiagnosis of her cancer early on. She kept seeing doctors and they said, no, everything's okay. What are you worried about, they would say. And she would say, I'm worried I have cancer. Well, it's nothing life-threatening, they said. And she used to complain that they don't believe me. They don't believe me. If she had been diagnosed nine, eight, seven, six months before, um, I'm not telling you that I know, but I would bet my bottom dollar that she'd be alive today. I thought she was going to pull it out. I never thought she would die. Never. And sometimes she would grab my hand and look at me, stare right into my soul and say, really? Really? And I'd say, if I could live as long as you're going to live, I'd settle right now. And I meant it. I thought that I would die before she did. I thought she would make it. After her death, Wilder spent several months researching cancer and contacting experts to figure out what went wrong, why his wife wasn't given a simple test that would have detected immediately whether she had ovarian cancer. In May of 91, he testified before Congress advocating for patients. Then he co-founded Gilda's Club, a nonprofit organization with local chapters all over the United States, which provides social support for cancer patients and their caregivers. He also gave Radner's name to the Ovarian Cancer Research Program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, in Los Angeles. In this clip from the 2003 compilation Voices for Gilda, a tribute to benefit the Gilda's Club organization, Gene Wilder shares a short, touching tribute to his deceased wife. The song Ohio is a number from the 1953 musical Wonderful Town. Gilda and I used to sing this little song by Leonard Bernstein from the musical Wonderful Town. We sang it for our closest friends at intimate little dinner parties when everyone was supposed to get up and do something. I was always nervous getting up and doing something, but Gilda and I sang this song, and it made us feel better. Once in a while, we even sang it alone at home when we were feeling a little lonely. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh. Why did I ever leave Ohio? Why did I wander to find what lies yonder when life was so cheery at home? Oh, wandering while I wander, why did I stray? Why did I roam? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, 
Did I leave Ohio? Maybe I'd better go. O-H-I-O Maybe I'd better go home. Wilder spent most of his time painting watercolors, writing, and participating in charitable efforts. In 98, he collaborated on the book Gilda's Disease with oncologist Stephen Piver, sharing personal experiences of Radner's struggles with ovarian cancer. Wilder himself was hospitalized with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 99, but confirmed in March 2005 that the cancer was in complete remission following chemo and a stem cell transplant. Wilder died at the age of 83 on August 29, 2016, at home in Stamford, Connecticut, from complications of Alzheimer's disease. He had kept knowledge of his condition private, but had been diagnosed three years prior to his death. Jordan Walker Perlman, the nephew child of the legendary actor, wrote this statement to honor the special person in his life. And I quote, It is with indescribable sadness and blues, but with spiritual gratitude for the life lived that I announced the passing of husband, parents, and universal artist Gene Wilder at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. It is almost unbearable for us to contemplate our life without him. The cause was complications from Alzheimer's disease with which he coexisted for the last three years. The choice to keep this private was his in talking with us and making a decision as a family. We understand for all the emotional and physical challenges this situation presented, we have been among the lucky ones. This illness pirate, unlike in so many cases, never stole his ability to recognize those that were closest to him, nor took command of his gentle, central, life-affirming core personality. It took enough, but not that. The decision to wait until this time to disclose his condition wasn't vanity, but more so that the countless young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka, would not have to then be exposed to an adult referencing illness or trouble and causing delight to travel to worry, to disappointment, or to confusion. He simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. He was 83 and passing holding our hands with the same tenderness and love he exhibited as long as I can remember. As our hands clutched and he performed one last breath, the music speaker, which was set to random, began to bear out one of his favorites, Ella Fitzgerald. There is a picture of he and Ella meeting at a London bistro some years ago that are among each of our most cherished possessions. She was singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow as he was taken away. This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. place behind the sun Just a step beyond the rain Somewhere over the rainbow
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Turning Point series, where we hear from folks about turning points in their lives, what it was, what life was like before it, after it, and where they are now. And today's story comes to us from Brave Magazine, where a gentleman named Ken McKay powerfully wrote about his personal journey, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. I was 10 years old when I took my first sip of beer. It was all very innocent. I was at a cookout, and in those days, guys would share a sip of beer with their son or, you know, with a nephew or something. By the time I was 12, though, I had my first drunk blackout experience, 12 years old. I didn't, you know, I didn't even really like the taste of beer, but as soon as I drank it, I knew why people drank it. Alcohol's effect on me was immediate. It made me feel comfortable, and it made me feel like I was exactly where I wanted to be. And it was downhill from there. In middle school and high school, I spent most of my time learning how to get drunk and get away with it. And I got really good at it. And as time went on, things got worse and worse. Over the years, I, I would surround myself with friends who liked drinking as much as I did. We had a lot of fun together. Uh, our behavior was often dangerous. I got into quite a bit of trouble. Drunkenly crashed cars and hanging out with dangerous people. Uh, waking up in strange places like some stranger's house or someone's yard or a park, even jail. No one was hurt, thank God. I mean, I was hurt. I got drunk and fell off a roof and broke my hip once, but no one else was physically hurt. I hurt a lot of people's feelings, and I lied to a lot of people. The only thing really consistent about me at that time was complete selfishness. Looking back drinking caused the lowest points of my life. And all of this trouble was no one else's fault. I only had myself to blame. It didn't come from some desire to get in trouble. It came from doubting myself. I convinced myself and everyone else that I wasn't very smart, that I was the dumb kid, Uh, That lowered other people's expectations of me, and then that would give me the excuse to be lazy and not challenge myself. It gave me the excuse to behave badly, and that behavior destroyed my self-confidence even further. And so at 17, I stopped believing I could finish high school, and then I dropped out. We're listening to Ken McKay, and we're talking about turning points, and they can happen in our lives at any point. Older, younger, cancer, alcoholism, a car accident, who knows what. So, Ken, what did you do next? I had nowhere to go, so I went to a recruiting office and I joined the Army. I wanted to get out of town quickly, and so I joined the infantry. 
because that was the quickest way to, to get in. Ultimately, I was saved by two things, an old man and a beautiful woman. And I'll tell you more about the woman later, but the old man was Uncle Sam. We got to Fort Benning at night, and me and the rest of these new soldiers, we signed paperwork and got examined, and they gave us some uniforms, and we signed some more papers, and then they cut off our hair, they shaved our heads, and we went to some barracks to get some sleep before we would start this sort of initiating process again. That first night at Fort Benning, I laid in the top bunk of a metal cot, and I rubbed the back of my newly shaved head, and I kept thinking it's like they say about shark skin, smooth one way and, and rough the other. And I said to myself over and over again, I won't quit. No matter what, I'm not going to quit. I laid there in the dark, rubbing my head, and I thought about my father, and I imagined where he was at that time, what he might be doing, what he might think about me. And I thought about the shame of quitting high school and really running away from troubles. And I knew right then, I had a moment where I knew that years of drinking had dragged me down. And you could sense Ken was turning things around right here. Let's continue with his story. After we were done processing and getting our equipment, we went out to our training battalions and the drill sergeants made us line up in rows and dump all of our belongings that we'd brought with us. And, and they said, we, you're, you, know, you can't have any contraband and this is an amnesty opportunity to take anything that you might have snuck in here and throw them in the trash and behind us was these steel trash cans. And I was petrified. I didn't know what contraband was. And I wasn't completely sure what they meant by amnesty either. I didn't know what that meant. So I grabbed everything that I had brought with me that the Army didn't issue me when we were in processing. And I picked it up and I went and I threw it in one of the trash cans. And a drill sergeant grabbed me from behind and scared the hell out of me. And he yelled at me in my face, envelopes and stationery and stamps are not contraband. Get that stuff out of the trash and get back in line. And so I did so immediately. And that moment has stuck with me in my life because looking back, I see the irony. I was so afraid and so naive. But at the time, I thought I was the coolest guy on the planet. Literally too cool for school. I was afraid of crowds. I thought that everybody knew some secret that I didn't know. I was too insecure to finish high school. And it was a contradiction that I never saw. I was really at that moment the coolest failure going. Still, the Army gave me some confidence and I excelled. In the field exam during basic training, I passed each task perfectly. And there were around 50 or 60 tasks, like setting up a radio, installing a landmine, treating a sucking chest wound, and I did all of them perfectly, one after the other. And only a few of us, of the 120 or 130 guys in that battalion, uh, accomplished that. And for the first time, I was proud of myself. And I began to wonder if I'm actually stupid. And when we come back, more of Ken McKay's story, our Turning Point series. And again, it can happen to any of us. It has happened to any of us. And it will happen more than likely again. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Ken McKay's story, when we come back. 
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our Turning Point series. And Ken McKay sharing his story of starting drinking at 10 years of age, having his first blackout experience at the age of 12, dropping out of high school at 17, and the one place he could go that would become his turning point, the United States military, where it turns out he excelled, leading him to think, Maybe I'm not as stupid as I thought. Let's return to Ken McKay's story. I was deployed to Korea. I spent some time on the demilitarized zone there. And my first sergeant in my, in my battalion in Korea once said to me, you know, McKay, you're a field soldier. I never complained, which in the Army and elsewhere, I've come to learn is a hugely important trait. I would work all day and night. I would always do more than asked. We needed sandbags filled one day while we were up on the DMZ. I stayed when everyone else left to eat and filled bags alone at the bottom of this sandy hill. And one night we had to qualify everybody on a particular weapon and I stayed up all night. Nobody had to ask me. I used night vision to score everyone and coached those through with difficulties. My first sergeant was, he was an experienced soldier, and he knew I'd misbehave if I had free time. That's what he meant by being a field soldier. He took my pass so I couldn't leave base. He, he, he protected me from myself. A Korean lady in the village near our base, it was Camp Hovi, Korea, and she loaned guys money for drinking when your pay was gone for a fee. I went to see her once and she wouldn't loan me any money. She ignored me, and I wondered why. And sometime later, I found out that my first sergeant had gone to the village and told her to stay away from me and not loan me anything. Again, he was protecting me from myself, and he was one of the best men I ever knew. He knew me when I didn't know myself. He took no excuses. His name was Thomas J. Griffin III. If I could ever thank him, I would. Thomas J. Griffin III I think you just got your thanks. And by the way, he protected me from myself. He took my pass. And my goodness, you can hear the, the, the thankfulness. One of the best men I ever knew. Let's continue. The Army was, it was really great to me, but it didn't stop me from drinking. It didn't cure my, my, my problems or anything. It taught me an important lesson, though, that if I put to my mind to something, there was nothing I couldn't accomplish. When I got out of the Army, I was 20, after three years. I returned home and got a job at a furniture store, and the owner of the place told me I should go to college. I never thought about that. I had finished high school while I was in the Army, so I went to a library in my town, and I got a book on schools, and I applied to those I thought I could get into. I ended up at a small school in North Carolina where... I didn't even know if I could pass a class, but it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like the thing my peers were doing, and so I did it. I had no idea what my ability was. After all, I was a high school dropout. Like the Army, I threw myself at it, not knowing if I could succeed, but again determined not to quit. It was about that time that I met a beautiful woman. Her name was Mary, and I fell in love with her, and I still thank God for her every day. And Ken continues 
with what this woman, this beautiful woman, Mary, did for him. She lived in my hometown in Rhode Island, and we were the same age, but she acted like an adult. And she didn't do the same kind of things that I did. I needed to grow up, and she provided a great example. The Army had laid some groundwork, but it was Mary who really helped me change. After college, I moved back to Rhode Island, where Mary and I were married shortly after. The economy was bad, but my self-doubt was receding, and with Mary's support, I applied to law school and was accepted. After my first year, I was on the Law Review. I graduated from law school, took the bar exam, and passed. My first job was at a small law firm in Rhode Island where I met a wonderful man who became a mentor to me. He had been in politics, and he introduced me to a guy who wanted to run for governor. So I met with Don Kachiri over a BLT at a local restaurant, and after a few minutes I thought, this is exactly the kind of person that should be governor. He was a long shot, and he didn't have a lot of help, and I knew I was going to put in a lot of hours as his campaign manager, but I agreed to do it, and we got started, and he won. It was historic. I became his chief of staff, and... I went on to run his successful re-election a few years later. From there, I went to a big law firm. That was people's expectation at the time. That's what you did. And I did it, but I only did it for the money. Remember this. When you do something solely for the money, it's rarely worth the money. So true. And he had escaped living for the alcohol. And that didn't end well. And he was learning that just doing something for dollars, well, that's never going to end well either. Thankfully, Ken escaped the trap of living for money. And here's the final portion of his remarkable turning point story. I went back to the thing that gave me the most satisfaction. I got back into politics. I helped win several governor's races across the country. I held senior roles in national political organizations. I managed budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars. I'd never imagined the possibility of any of these successes in my adolescence. I even managed a presidential campaign. Despite great opportunities and experiences, some successes and achievements in my life, I spent a lot of my life not believing in myself but I still found a life. I found a meaningful purpose. And I found the greatest thing I have, a beautiful wife and three kids. So after everything I've learned, I'm going to try to give you a couple of pieces of advice. First and foremost, at any point in your life, make good choices. I learned that lesson the hard way. If you're considering something and you have that twinge that it might be wrong, it's probably really wrong. And I would suggest you don't do it. Or at least really take a long pause and think through what might be the matter. Because making the wrong choices can haunt you. Wrong choices can cause regrets and sorrow. And trust me, those feelings are hard to shake. The right choices, on the other hand, will serve you well your whole life. Second, don't waste time worrying about what other people think. 
My self-doubt drove me to bad decisions when I was younger, followed by lifelong regrets. Be yourself. Other people will respect you for it. Third, be fearless. Believe in yourself, trust yourself, and make your own decisions. We are all stronger, smarter, and more capable than we think. Once you have that knowledge, it's powerful. Some of you are going to experience self-inflicted difficulties during your lives. Some of you are going to doubt yourselves. But you should know that if you decide to follow those pieces of advice, you can overcome anything to find happiness. And such good advice and hard-won wisdom from Ken McKay, who turned his life around thanks to a sergeant, a first sergeant, to a bride. And by the way, that guy at the furniture store who said, son, you need to be going to college. You know, all these things we can do for people, we don't even know it, but we can. The power of our words, the power of our example, the power of our leadership. And thank you for sharing that story with us, Ken. And if you have a turning point story, give us a call at 844-627-8255. Record your story there or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844 844- 627-8255. And by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Another one of our favorites was Bill Bachman's Turning Point story. He left a partnership in a law firm in Washington, D.C., and not just any law firm, Williams & Connolly, one of the great law firms in this country. And he did it all because something was missing in his life, and he decided to coach Division Three sports at Catholic U University. And my goodness, at Catholic University, and what a difference in his life. This is Lee Habib, Turning Point, Ken McKay's story. Your stories here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life, and where we love to bring you stories from medical professionals who are on the front lines of keeping us all healthy, and who are with us in what are often the most trying moments of our lives. And today we bring you just such a story that we found on the terrific website LifeZet.com. I happen to write for them too. It was written by a critical care physician named Jeremy Topin. And he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Jeremy's story. The patient in front of me is trying to die. Elderly and frail, he's lying in the bed. His ribs outlined under skin that should be smooth. His temples are concave, where they should be flat. 
both an outward display of internal damage from his lung cancer. More striking than his cachexia are the strained muscles in his neck and his pursed lip breathing. He is working hard for each breath drowning in the air around him from his cancer or pneumonia or more likely both. It's my first night on call as a senior resident in the ICU. It is early in my second year of residency at the University of Chicago where I'm splitting my time between internal medicine and pediatrics. The intensive care unit is outside my comfort zone with its rapid pace and large volume of data to process and the complexities of multiple failing organ systems to manage. I'm both intimidated and inspired by those who seem to recognize patterns, synthesize information, and anticipate problems with ease. I want to be like them. I want to face my fears head on. I've chosen to be here to prove to myself that I can do this, that I'm capable of caring for the sickest of the sick. And now in the middle of the night, without a supporting daytime cast of residents and attendings, I'm anxious for my first test, and it happens to be the man in front of me, struggling to breathe. I want to be here. I want to be a critical care physician. I know what to do. A, B, C, airway, breathing, circulation. He has A in airway. He needs B, help with his breathing. His C, circulation, is fine. And his blood pressure, for the moment, is good. The team, two interns and me, prepare to intubate, placing a tube into his lungs to help him breathe. I've been reading for months about managing patients on a ventilator, the perils, the pitfalls. I review chapters and books written by my attendings who I will report to in the morning. I'm ready. Anesthesia comes and places the tube. I run fluids to prevent low blood pressure. I start medicine to sedate and calm my patient. I call out ventilator settings to help breathe for and give oxygen to my patient. It all goes wrong. His blood pressure drops dangerously low. He's thrashing around in the bed, working even harder than before. Alarms on the ventilator are beeping. His oxygen levels are now critically low. He needs more sedation to calm him, but that will make his already low blood pressure worse. He needs medicine to help support his failing circulation, but it requires a special IV, a central line in his neck or groin. I have placed a few but not in critical situations, much less in a patient thrashing about all over the bed. I tried different settings on the ventilator. Settings for pneumonia with high oxygen and more pressure. Settings for COPD with quicker but smaller breaths. All to no avail. He is not following the books I have read nor any pattern I recognize. He's gone from bad to worse and now is close to death. I breathe. All eyes are on me. The nurses, the respiratory therapists, the interns are all looking to me, the senior resident, to take charge and help this patient. But the puzzle of my patient's physiology is beyond my recognition. A 
I don't want to be here. I don't know what to do. I'm failing. But more importantly, my patient is dying. Call a code, I say. The nurses look puzzled, but he's not coding. His heart hasn't stopped. He's about to. Call it. I need more help. I need more people here. Dr. Cart, ICU. Dr. Cart, ICU echoes overhead, alerting all those on call scattered throughout the hospital that there isn't a code or an arrest. They're to stop what they're doing to come to assist when that hospital-wide alarm is sent out. But when they enter the ICU, breathless from their sprint, they do not find a patient without a pulse, but instead a senior resident who is failing in his responsibility to help his patient. I feel shame, inadequate, an imposter. Worst of all, I'm a danger to my patient. There's now a larger group of residents, some more senior, others the same level of training as me. I quickly explain the situation, and after a few questions, two of them look at each other with recognition of the pattern that has eluded me. Acute right heart failure prompted by positive pressure from the ventilator. The right ventricle is struggling to pump blood to the lungs. Usually our focus is on the left ventricle pumping blood to the body. Difficult to treat when recognized, impossible if not appreciated. One resident deftly places that IV in his neck. The other goes to work on the ventilator, modifying the settings, and 30 minutes later, my patient is stable at least for the next few hours, through no help of my own. The three of us debrief a bit and talk about a game plan moving forward before I call and update the attending at home. They go back to their patients, leaving me alone with my team and my thoughts. The patients in the ICU make it through the rest of the night unscathed, unlike my psyche. I am humbled by what I need to learn and shaken by how my deficiencies almost led to a death. My patient's life now on a more stable course, I find my own career path in jeopardy. With a bit more time separating me from the event, I start to process the evening. My colleagues who came to my rescue did not judge me. They came to help a co-resident and patient in need. The shame or judgment I felt was my own and my own to bear. Today, I appreciate even more the culture and learning environment at the University of Chicago, where cooperation trumps ego and pride in an environment that encourages resident autonomy. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. What could have led to an abandonment of a life goal instead became a building block for future learning. It has been 17 years since my first night as a senior resident in the ICU. 12 of those have been as an adult pulmonary and critical care doctor working with a group of physicians that practice with the same philosophy. That recognizing one's limits is an important part of being a doctor. There is no sin in having deficits, but there is in failing to acknowledge and learn from them. I learned more that night than the pattern of acute right heart failure. I took a big step to being a lifelong learner.
And what a great piece. And thank you, Dr. Topin. And my goodness, he was, he was recalling that incident as if it happened yesterday. And it's something we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form. It's how we learn, folks. And asking for help is not a weakness. Dr. Jeremy Topin's story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and sciences and straight to history and your stories too. In fact, some of our very best work has come from you. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org We'll take a listen, we'll produce them and we'll play them. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, our next segment is about, well, our favorite subject here on the show. We talk the most in the studio about food, but on the show, most of our content, the biggest category is music. And by the way, about everything, from Sinatra to Miles Davis to Merle Haggard, Whitney Houston, Nirvana, everybody. There's no music we prefer over another, including Vladimir Horowitz's story, the great Russian pianist. It's all good, and music is music. And we're about to take a short yet fascinating trip down a road that leads to modern-day hip-hop. In the beginning, the hip-hop scene was a raw, raw experience. It was an underground music expression that was light years away from the commercial enterprise that it became. But one music producer took the low-budget, lo-fi rawness of hip-hop and put his own polished spin on it, making it accessible to the world. And the world has never been the same since. To tell this story... We must first take two steps back to the early 1970s. Here's Greg Hengler. In his 1998 book, For the Record, Sly and the Family Stone, Joel Selvin writes, There are two types of black music. Black music before Sly Stone and black music after Sly Stone. Though their influence on hip-hop wouldn't be fully realized until the birth of the genre, Sly and the Family Stone had a major impact on hip-hop artists and their musical tastes, as well as the music that they would end up creating. Here's music historian Jason King. Just as the rise of female singer-songwriters in the 1970s meant that people like Joni Mitchell were able to produce their own vision of who they were in the recording studio, you also have the rise of African-American artists who start to use the recording studio in a way that's incredibly creative and very different than the past. People like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and Curtis Mayfield, and particularly, I think, Sly from Sly and the Family Stone. These artists became the producers themselves. Here's record producer Arthur Baker. He was his own boss. You couldn't think of anyone telling Sly what to do in the studio. Here's Q-Tip from the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. 
I can talk about Sly and the Family Stone for a very long time. Okay, play it. Gang. Gang. Sly Stone brought in a song craftsmanship to funk that wasn't there. He put his own spin on it, and out came something really unique and bold and just fresh. Here's drummer Questlove, who performs with The Roots for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Because of the ongoing conflicts between Sly and his family Stone, he wound up doing his fifth record, There's a Riot Going On, by himself. Here's music historian Oliver Wang. Slystone was such a huge musical experiment. He would try playing with things that most other musicians hadn't thought about. He did it like what now we'd call a home studio. That's Sly playing bass, it's Sly playing guitar, Sly playing keyboards. Of course, he's programming, drum programming on the air, which is like early kind of hip hop. Some uptight producer would go, no, I don't want that. That sound, that doesn't sound like real drums. That was the point. It didn't, but it was something funkier. What he did in 1971 will be the gold standard for how musicians will create their music 10 years later. Here's Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels. The significance of the black musician, songwriter, um, singer, producer, whatever. To me, it all boils down to communicating the lives we live. Here's music historian Todd Boyd. It's a generation of people who don't have access to musical instruments, who don't have musical training, they're using music to create new music. We took what was available and created hip hop. Why you serve? Take the train to the plane. Drop a school on church. It's like that. With hip hop, the role of the producer changes completely. You have producers sampling and using drum machines. Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley. The best producers, they have this ability to create a signature tapestry that makes all of these bits and pieces actually sound like an original composition. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. In the early 1990s, Dr. Dre basically put West Coast hip hop on the map. He was notorious for having this sound that was unlike anything else. Here's hip-hop producer Hank Shockley. Gangsta rap. That music took on a life of its own. And it gave the West Coast and L.A. scene its own voice. Here's record producer Tricky Stewart. I remember the shift when N.W.A. and Dre came into the scene Sonically, it was polished, but at the same time, it was like this 
super hard West Coast sound. I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary. But my technique is very necessary. Blame it on Ice Cube because the it get funky when you got a subject and a predicate. And you felt Dre's presence as one of the greatest hip hop producers of all time, if not the greatest. Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine. When we started Interscope, I didn't know anything about running a business, and I knew even less about hip hop. So his fellow John McClain was an A&R guy. He brought this tape and said, we have to sign these guys. I said, who is it? He goes, it's Dr. Dre. It's his solo record. It used to be an NWA. I said, okay. I said, I don't really know a lot about it, but, you know, play it for me. One, two, three, and to the four. Snoop, Doggy Dog, and Dr. Dre is at the door. And I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't understand the music, but I understood the sound. So Dre comes in. I said, Dre, who recorded this record? He said, I did. I said, no, no, not who produced it. Who engineered it? He said, I did. I said, wow, this guy's on to something. Here's Dr. Dre. Everybody has to have their own sound. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes it different, you know? And I'm a perfectionist. Because no matter how hard you work in the studio, no matter what you do, you don't know if people are going to dig it. It's, it's very easy to make a hip-hop record. It's not easy to make a good hip-hop record. When Dre came in with The Chronic, he was using live musicians and recording it very sparse. He's finding samples that we all overlook, pulling from funk and G-funk. You know, you listen to the sample on G thing. Here's RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. He's hearing things that the average ear will never encounter in a song. And then when he hears it, he'll pull it out. He will pull it out. Here again is Questlove. I'll admit something to you. I was one of the initial naysayers of Dr. Dre's The Chronic was like everything I didn't want hip-hop to be. It was clean, louder, bigger. I wanted my hip-hop dirty. This DIY approach, this very low-budget, lo-fi approach to making music. That's what I felt hip-hop should and always be. It took me 10 years to really understand where Dr. Dre was going. And now that I make records, now I understand why this album is so important. What he did for hip-hop and for sampling is that he proved that you can make a record of the highest quality as a hip-hop producer. Besides crafting and popularizing G-Funk, a.k.a. gangsta rap, Dr. Dre is the founder and CEO of Aftermath Entertainment, and in 2008, he released his first brand of headphones, Beats by Dr. Dre. It was sold to tech giant Apple in 2014 for a reported $3.2 billion, the most expensive Apple takeover purchase ever. Dre's net worth spiked to an estimated $740 million. Dr. Dre got married to his wife, Nicole, in 1996. They have two children together, a son named Truth, and a daughter named Truly. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. All you got to do is 
And great job as always, Greg. And boy, we learn things here on this show. What a story about an American life, an American musician and producer. Dr. Dre's story here on Our American Stories. 